Welcome back to the room. Uh, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to close out this chapter with verses 23 through 28. A few years ago, there was a theology that gained some traction. Uh, it's just a new way of thinking about God, and it was, uh, it was called open theism. Uh, it's been around for a long time. It described God in a way in which God doesn't know the future. Uh, that He is simply responding in the moment to everything that's happening. That as you pray, and as others pray, and as events happen that He could not know or foresee, that calamities or catastrophes or events or fires or earthquakes or hurricanes or typhoons, famines, plagues, all these things are completely out of His foreknowledge. And this idea of open theism is the idea that God doesn't know the future and He has no plan and that He is essentially just responding to everything that's happening in real time. Well, as we've read through the book of Hebrews, you, you may have noticed that that's a hard theology to believe as you've read through this book. Hebrews makes that very difficult to believe because this book demonstrates in really clear ways the foreknowledge of God. The, the eternal plan of God, the foreshadowing that has taken place uh, of what Christ did. You think about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, the passage we're going to read this morning affirms that they were copies or shadows of what was to come. They continuously pointed forward to what Jesus accomplished. If you've read literature, you know that foreshadowing is a common literary tool that um, hints at what's to come. Uh, for example, this sentence says her early interest in airplanes foreshadowed her later career as a pilot. And so it's a literary device that is very common that if you want to um, have something fulfilled later in your story, you might hint at it in the beginning. Well, the Bible uses that in many ways. You think about um, in Genesis, the fall of man in Genesis 3, that in order for God to cover their shame and their nakedness. You remember Adam and Eve were naked and they were hiding after they had fallen away from God, after they had disobeyed God. They, they tried to sew together uh, fig leaves, right? And they were trying to cover them, their shame. They felt guilty. They felt ashamed of their sin that they had committed. And so God had to, to kill an innocent animal and take the skins and make them as a covering for them. There was foreshadowing in, in the Proto-Evangelion is the, the theological term for the first gospel. Uh, when, when God uh, in the curse of Satan said that, uh, that there will come one born of a woman who will uh, crush the head of Satan. In all these ways, we see that God is in every way not just responding in real time. But that He has a plan, that He has a, a purpose, that everything He does is definitive. You think about the Old Testament and the covenants and the sacrificial system. They all prefigured Jesus. Jesus in His lifetime fulfilled over 300 specific prophecies. Many of which He had no control over. Where He would be born. To whom He would be born. What His family would look like. In all these ways, Jesus fulfilled all these very specific prophecies. Some dating up to 1,000 to 2,000 years old. 
For any one person to fulfill ten prophecies is highly unlikely. But for someone to come at just the right time, at just the right place, as Galatians says, that at just the right moment, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. And that when that happened, Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies, demonstrates that God has a plan and a purpose. Today's passage continues that idea that all of the Old Testament rites and rituals and sacrifices pointed forward to the coming Messiah and the better, once for all, superior sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the author is, is going through all these points, trying to convince his audience not to go backward, not to backslide, not to shrink backward into a former way of life because of their current situation and trials and temptations and difficulties. Not to go backward, but to persist in faith. In every major section, there's a warning. There's a warning not to go backward, but to persist, to keep going. So you here this morning, you might be facing a difficult situation. You might be struggling to maintain faith in Jesus Christ, to maintain your confession, to keep your hope anchored in Jesus Christ. The longer I walk with God, the more I realize that oftentimes there are unspoken contracts that I have in my faith with God. You know what that means? You know what what I'm saying? Almost as if I say, uh, I'll believe if. If you do this for me, I will maintain my faith in you. I will continue to walk with you if this. And it wasn't conscious. When I gave my life to Christ uh, in 1991, I didn't come with a list of things saying, God, I will follow you if. But along the way, subconsciously, subliminally, in some way, I've I've carried these things that prop up my faith. And as I've walked with God, He has removed all these props, all of these things that if, if you experience this trial, or if you go through this temptation, or if you go through this experience, or if things don't work out the way you want them to, will you still follow me? And thank God to this moment, it's the answer is yes. That's my Ebenezer, that up to this point I have followed him and he's been faithful to me and I will continue. You may have had these uh, unspoken contracts as well. Maybe you had a, a thought for your life or a plan for your life or a hope for your life. And as that plan has worked out or maybe not worked out or maybe you've come to God with these unspoken ifs, if you do this for me, I will follow you. And though God is almighty and though he loves us and though he cares for us and he responds to our prayers, He at no time will bargain with us. He doesn't save us based on what we desire for Him to do. But we're saved based on what Jesus did. And if the salvation that was purchased for us by the blood of His only Son isn't enough, if we have to add to that formula, if you do this, it wasn't enough that you gave your Son, if you do this for me, then I'll follow you. Then what we do is we say that His sacrifice wasn't enough. So this morning, I want us to think about how we can persist in faith. That's the message of Hebrews, that if you're in Christ, persist in faith. No matter the trials, no matter the difficulties, no matter the struggles, that faith in Christ alone is what saves us in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And today's passage continues to build on that. So let's read chapter 9, verses 23 through 28 together. The Bible says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified 
with these rites. Now, pause there. Last week was all about blood. I know some people had to get up and leave the room because the idea of blood makes you queasy. And, and it was a pretty gory sermon. If you want to hear it, it's online. It's not rated R, but it's, it does point to you know a lot of physical realities. And the, the basic idea was that blood is... Blood is what? Blood is life, and life is what? Life is precious. Blood is life, and life is precious. And God gave the blood of His only Son so that we could have life. That's how precious uh, His life was. So, in the Old Testament, everything was cleansed or purified using blood. I have a diagram here. I'm the, this infogram basically shows all the ways in which the, the message of the tabernacle pointed forward to what Jesus accomplished. The laver, the lampstand, the altar, the mercy seat, blood that was sprinkled on the altar, even the holy of holies and the, the most holy place. Uh, all of these things were prefigures, were copies, were shadows pointing forward to the reality that Jesus would accomplish for us. And we'll leave this out uh, for a few weeks. would love for you to, uh, to get to know this better. Because I want you to see in all these ways that all the copies of the heavenly things that Jesus introduced in the Old Covenant, Jesus fulfilled in a better way in the New Covenant. So in verse 23, he says, But the heavenly things themselves were purified with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now, if you've ever diagrammed sentences, I know a lot of you love diagramming sentences. I don't like diagramming sentences, but it's unfortunately a part of my weekly routine. If I'm trying to get to the, to the purpose of what God or what this passage in the Bible is saying, I have to be able to understand the, the arc of the argument or the flow or the main point that the author is trying to make. And the main point that we see in verse 24, if you take away all the modifiers, for Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ appeared in front of God on our behalf. This points to one of the basic purposes that Jesus fulfilled in His lifetime. That, that He wasn't going into a tent, and He wasn't going into a temple, and He wasn't going behind a curtain that symbolized the presence of God. Uh, something that was torn down in the tent uh, in the wilderness and was taken up and put away and put up in different places. It wasn't in Solomon's temple that was torn down. It wasn't in Herod's temple that was completed in the lifetime of Jesus or just before Jesus' lifetime. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't about that, but Jesus, those were just a copy, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would actually do, that He would actually go into the very presence of God to be an advocate on behalf of the people that He has purchased. That's good news for, for you and I. Because we couldn't have gone into the Holy of Holies, much less the presence of God without some sort of righteous covering. You, you fool yourself if you think, I could stand in the presence of God on my own. I hear this all the time. People say, I'm a good enough person. Of course God is going to accept me into His eternal kingdom. There's, there's, uh, everything about me is good. I'm a good person. I'm not like, insert the most maniacal mass murderer you can think of at the moment. And that's people's, that's people's general understanding is that I'm good enough. I can be good enough. I can work my way to heaven. You couldn't even go into the shadow to, to the copy of the eternal reality without being killed. We can't appear in the presence of God without covering. Fig leaves 
don't cover our sin and shame. It required a sacrifice. It required skin. It required God intervening. And so Jesus has entered not into holy places made with hands, verse 24, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Listen, that's good news. That's good news in light of verse 27. We'll get there in a second. Verse 25, he says, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. You understand the Old Testament uh, that once a year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the the high priest would, would go into the holy place and he would sacrifice and sprinkle blood on the altar first for his own sins, the, the unknown sins that he might have committed during the year, and then he would do it on behalf of the nation to, as a catch-all. Now, they were sacrificing animals daily. If you sinned against your mother or your father or your spouse or your brother or sister or your neighbor, there was a prescribed sacrifice that had to be made all the time. And so there, there was a continual offering uh, for, of forgiveness for the sins that you knew you committed. But once a year, there were things that you didn't even know that you did that you sinned against God in ways. And so this was the catch-all, the Yom Kippur. And it had to be done every year, and it had to be done just right, and it had to be done according to all these rituals. This was the reality of the Old Covenant. But when Jesus came, He made the once-for-all sacrifice. Verse 26 says, He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, He's appeared once-for-all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Just a question. How many of your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus? That's right, all of them. All the ones that you've committed up until now? No. No, in Christ, He sees you and He knows you and all the sins that you've committed up until now and all the sins that you will commit are covered by the future grace of God. In Christ Jesus. His atonement on your behalf on the cross was enough to cover your sin completely if you're in Christ Jesus, if your faith is in Christ Jesus. That's good news, right? That's good news that, that you are covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore what? Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His once for all sacrifice was accepted. And the resurrection is a receipt that God approved of his sacrifice. The fact that the Holy of Holies, the curtain between the most holy place and the holy place. What happened at the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit? Torn in two from top to bottom. Big old thick curtain. Big thick curtain. Torn in two from top to bottom symbolizing the fact that Jesus has purchased entrance into God's presence by His blood, not through the priest who sprinkles the blood of a lamb or a sheep on the altar on the mercy seat once a year. Jesus has paid, given you the way into the Holy of Holies. Continuing in our passage, in verse 27. Let me back up and finish verse 26. As it is... Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, all throughout Hebrews, I've pointed out verses to memorize, right? Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, in, in many ways, in many days, God has spoken to us by His prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God. You remember these very clear, wonderful passages that we found all throughout Hebrews. This is one of those passages. And it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many people, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So let's take this in chunks. Let's take it in verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Let's talk about that for a couple minutes. You have an appointment with death. Not to get real morbid, but it's a reality. The latest statistics show that uh, 10 out of 10 people die. Uh, I can't help to say it, but in this passage it says that every person has an appointment with death. Every person. And you don't know the day, you don't know the hour, you don't know the time. It could be today, you could be in the final moments of your life. Regardless of your age, regardless of your situation, regardless of how confident you are that you'll live many happy years, not a single one of us is promised another breath. Not a single one of us are promised another breath. Death we understand is not natural. You think, well, that doesn't sound right. Death sounds natural. But death is not natural to God's original creation, is it? No, death was a part of divine judgment. Death was a part of divine judgment. When you, when you see death, there is pain in it, not just because of the loss of a loved one or the loss of life, but because of the reality that this was a result of our sinfulness. Uh, God told Adam, and even the garden, then you will surely die if you eat of this fruit, Right? And as a result of their disobedience, death was introduced in the world. First, in the form of an innocent animal that was slain to cover their unrighteousness. So death is a part of our divine judgment. It's not a natural thing. It was introduced in creation after the fall. And each of us, individually, have a looming appointment with death. And with judgment. And so we can't casually think that we can show up to this appointment unprepared. That's the biblical message. God has gone to great lengths to give you confidence in salvation and in death and in judgment. That he kindly, mercifully opens his hand and says, I offer you mercy and forgiveness. I paid the sin price for you. You don't have to pay it yourself. And if you'll only receive the gift that I'm offering to you, then you can have eternal life in Christ Jesus. My righteousness will cover you like a righteous robe. Like an umbrella that shelters you from the waters of God's judgment. And in all those ways, you have to receive it by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith. And this is not by works, lest any man should boast. So the gift is very clearly received by faith. But you can't casually show up to this appointment with death and judgment unprepared and expect Eternity in heaven and uh, to be in God's presence unprepared. You understand this. You don't go to meetings unprepared. You have an appointment with somebody, maybe a financial planner or maybe it's a counselor or maybe it's a a work meeting. And in every way you do your best to prepare uh, and to come ready for all those appointments. Why would you come to this great appointment with your creator completely unprepared? 
Having never read much of his word, having never prayed, having never considering, uh, having considered Jesus Christ and the gift that he offers you. All of these ways we see in Christ the gift that God offers, the mercy that he offers us. We understand there's different kinds of judgment. We're going to read in Hebrews in a couple of chapters that there is the, the discipline of God. That when a, a, a believer in Christ Jesus sins, he experiences discipline. As a father disciplines his son, so God will discipline those he loves. And it's painful. You no know, discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But the, the reward of that discipline is life. And the purging of sin and the purging of your flesh, that's for the believer that God would build in disciplines for those that he loves. The greatest way that some believers can experience the love of God is through his divine discipline through his heavy hand of conviction. But friend, if God has never disciplined you, if you have never felt the sting of God's discipline, he disciplines those he loves. He disciplines his children. He disciplines his own. But this is different than judgment. Discipline and divine judgment are different. There are different kinds of judgments. There is a a judgment that's just a built-in consequence of sin. Right? That Galatians 5, that... What you sow, that shall you also reap. For if a man continually sows to his flesh, from the flesh he will reap death and destruction. But if he sows to the Spirit, then from the Spirit he will reap life. There is a built-in consequential sense of judgment that if you persist in sin, you will experience the judgment of God. Just as a natural result of the consequences of sin, the cause and effect discipline of God. There is a sense in which calamities carry judgment. In 2004, there was the Boxer Day tsunami, in which was terribly sad, but in which thousands of souls were immediately swept into eternity. There is a Romans 1 kind of judgment. You understand a Romans 1 kind of judgment that in three ways, all those who suppress the truth about God, that God gradually gives them over, Right? If you continually persist in a form of life or in a way of life, God will give you over to that sin. He'll finally say, you want that sin? I'm just going to give you a belly full. You can have all you want of it. I'm just going to let you go. And the letting go of God is one of the worst forms of divine judgment that there is. When you refuse to repent, when you refuse to confess, when you refuse to come back to Him, though He offers mercy, though He offers forgiveness, if you refuse that, He will give you over. And in that passage, He gives over whole cultures. First, to to blatant sexuality. The second part of that divine judgment of giving them over is to homosexuality, to taking the the real purposes and plans of God for good relationships and and distorting it into ways that don't honor God and our creation and our created bodies. The third way is a depraved mind. It gives you up to a depraved mind, which one of the greatest things you have is the ability to reason your way to understand who God is. But once he gives you over in those three levels, that third level, the the giving over of a depraved mind, there's no way to reason your way back from that. We see that third type of judgment in our culture in many ways. Have you ever just watched the news and said, this is insane. This is insane. We don't know what a man is and we don't know what a woman is. We don't know what a healthy relationship looks like. We call good bad and we call bad good. This very sermon might be quoted in, in a trial against me in years to come. The fact that I would be so clear that the Bible condemns sin. 
In all those ways in which we see judgment, there's the believer's judgment that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that if you're in Christ, though you escape the big day of judgment, there will be a day in which your works are exposed to fire. That God says, what did you do with the life I gave you in Christ? Were you fruitful? Were you faithful? Were you serving yourself or were you serving the flesh? Were you serving God? Were you doing the work that I called you to do? That's a believer's day of judgment. But there is the day of judgment. You read the book of Amos. You read some of the Old Testament prophets. All points forward. read Revelation that there is one day. Revelation 20 when the books will be opened. And all of the living, all of the people from, from every age will come before God. And so the books were opened. And those whose names were found in the Lamb's book of life will live. And those who don't will not. There will be a reaping. As an atheistic kid, uh, eighth grader, just living in complete just immorality in many ways. I'll never forget coming outside of school one day at Whittier Middle School in Norman, Oklahoma. And there was just something different in the air. There was just an electricity, a buzz kind of a thing. I didn't know how to place it, but I knew that something was unusual. And as I looked around, I saw uh, groups, maybe 50 different groups of students. And in every group, there was a person standing up with uh, literature and I don't know why, I don't know how, I, was just, I just walked outside and found this scene where, where there were people talking about the day of judgment and they were talking about Jesus and they had these pamphlets and all these people were listening to them. And I remember walking into one of those groups and listening for a minute and looking around first thinking, this is a joke, right? Why, why, are, why is this happening? Why are all these people here? It turns out that it was some weird prediction of the end of the world uh, by some false group. What I couldn't get around is that the truth, the partial truth that I was hearing was that there was a day of judgment and that God was coming again and there would be this time of judgment. And it put a fear in me. It put, a, it put a real fear in me that here I am as a 44-year-old guy telling you about this time when I was 12 years old or 13 years old and that I remembered as this atheistic, immoral kid saying, there's something different in my spirit that responds to this truth that there's a creator and there's a day in which he's going to call me to account for the things that I'm doing. It might have taken a few more years for me to take that more seriously, but it was a moment. I remember my friend Jamie uh, in high school after I gave my life to Christ, I remember witnessing to him and he said, I'm not interested right now. Years later, I went back and in college, picked up the same conversation with Jamie And he said, I'll do that after I get out of college. I'm having too much fun now. I remember going back at a high school reunion and he said, I'll do this again when I get married, when I have kids. Continually pushing this day back that he plans on getting right with God. God doesn't work in those ways. There is a day of judgment for every person. Something in your spirit knows that's true. If it's true on earth, if it's true in our civil Judicial proceedings, it's, it's true in the heavenlies as well. There is a day of judgment. So, verse 28 is the good news. If that's the bad news, that it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Verse 28 says, So Christ, having been once to bear the sins of many, Jesus bore the sins of everybody from the past that looked forward to the coming of Christ, and He bore the sins of everybody present that were at the time of His death, and He bore the sins of everybody future who would ever sin and put their faith in Jesus. His once for all sacrifice was sufficient to bear the sins from Adam and Eve till the last person dies. 
His once for all sacrifice was sufficient to cover all the sins of the world for those who enter that ark of salvation. Those who enter into faith in Jesus. Verse 28, Jesus offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's talk about what it means to eagerly wait for Jesus. Who else in scripture can you think of that was eagerly waiting? And what does that look like for someone to eagerly wait? You probably remember Luke 2, uh, when Jesus was born, there was a man named Simeon who was devout. He was full of the Holy Spirit and revealed to him that he would not taste death until he saw the eye, with his own eyes the salvation of God. And as Jesus is being brought into the temple by uh, Mary and by Joseph, as he walks in, I, don't, I can't even imagine what this scene looked like. Something in his spirit says, look at that child. And he looks at this eight-day-old baby and he can't help himself, but he walks over, he takes the baby in his arms, and he says, my eyes have seen the salvation of God. Your servant can now depart in peace. This is a guy who was eagerly waiting, in tune with the Holy Spirit, waiting, watching, hoping, praying, listening to God, in tune with the Holy Spirit. In that same passage, we're introduced to Anna. Anna from Luke 2, uh, the, the Bible tells us that she was married for seven years and then was widowed. And then now I think she, the passage says she's 84 years old. It says that night and day she never left the temple. She was worshiping, she was fasting, and she was praying. And uh, she uh, saw the Messiah himself waiting for the Redeemer. You think about Hannah in the Old Testament who was waiting for a child and Eli took her prayers as a drunk woman murmuring and she said, I'm just so broken that I'm seeking God and praying. You think about Sarah, uh, Rachel, all waiting for a child. Now you think about in the book of Revelation, it describes that under the throne of God, there are martyrs who are crying out day by day saying, how long, how long, how long until you avenge our blood? You think about the disciples in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. One of the things you see in church history is that there is a spiritual discipline of waiting. There's a spiritual discipline. In Scotland, there was a a spiritual discipline and activity where faithful men and women from the church would show up on a Saturday night and would just wait. They would walk in between the pews, praying, beseeching God, make your presence known among us tomorrow. As the body is gathered, we wait for you. And it's our hope that, there, that your presence will come. There was a spiritual discipline of waiting. Of fixing your hope, not on something temporal, but on something eternal. Someone eternal. I asked my family last night, what are things that you wait for? What are some things that you wait eagerly for? Of course, we got uh, Christmas. Uh, we got food, right? We can't wait to eat. I can't wait to graduate from school. Do you remember being in high school, junior and senior? You just could not wait to get out of school. Anybody remember that in college? It took me 12 years to graduate college. I took the roundabout way. Went for four years, dropped out, went back, went back, dropped out. It was back and forth. I didn't, I didn't do anything the easy way. I just kind of took my time. And, uh, but once I finally graduated, right, as like a 27-year-old, finally, you know, Waiting for a child to be born, waiting for retirement, waiting for the test to come back, waiting for a spouse to come to faith, waiting for a a judgment in your favor, waiting for something. We all understand what it means to wait eagerly. 
for something. But do you wait eagerly for Jesus? And what does that waiting look like? Because the truth is Jesus is coming back. You think about His first coming. Jesus was humble. He was gentle. He came as a little baby in a manger. Among the sheep, we're going to put on a play you know, for, for Christmas and it's going to look like every play you've probably been to before because the story hasn't changed. There are going to be kids up here. There's going to be little mangers and some sheep and some animals. and It's going to be cute. I mean, we're going to take pictures and we're all going to stand around. And it's going to be gentle baby Jesus who comes and humble. And even during Jesus' life, He was gracious. He healed the sick. He healed those who were wounded. He healed the demon-possessed. He brought hope. He taught. He was a servant. He was compassionate. You think about on the day of His betrayal, He got on His knees. He took off His outer robe. He tied it around His waist. He got on His knees in front of Judas, who would, in just a couple of hours, would kiss Him and have Him arrested so that He would go to His crucifixion. And Jesus is there washing His feet. Jesus was sacrificial. He came riding on a donkey. He was compassionate. He allowed his enemies to have their way with him without putting up a fight. You remember Peter just grabbed his sword and chopped off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. You remember that? And Jesus puts the ear back on the guy. He says, hey, come on. Just at any moment, I can call upon my father and he can send legions of angels to come to my defense. But this is their time now. That's, that's Jesus in his first coming. If you've read Revelation, Jesus is different. John 1, He comes. Revelation 1, John falls on the ground as though a dead man. He turns, looks as this glowing figure with fire coming out of his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and he's got tattoos on his thigh and he's got a sword in his hand and he's riding on a war horse and he's coming back and he's saying, this is not the first time baby Jesus is coming. This is, this is Jesus coming to collect His own. This This is Jesus who is coming in judgment to end things, to collect those who are His, and to finally put an end to sin. If you've ever been to an NFL game, you see the players come out for pre, pre-game warm-up and they're throwing bals and they're, they're happy and they're, they're, they're inter- interacting with the fans and with the media and everybody. But then there's something happens at game time, right? When you see Brian Dawkins and he's coming, running out the tunnel. And there's just something about the second coming of Jesus there's a fire. There's a, this is a different Jesus. Read the book of Revelation. The end is clear that Jesus is coming again. And when He comes, He's not going to be the first Jesus. Jesus stands now offering mercy. He stands now offering grace. All who come to Me, I will not what? I will not refuse. I won't cast them out. There comes a time when it's over. And you may be thinking, I'll do that some other time. I'll do that on my deathbed. What if you get in an accident and there is no deathbed? What if you get a virus? What if something happens? Listen, you have an appointment with death and judgment and Jesus stands mercifully ready to receive you and offer forgiveness and grace to cover your sin. You think, man, just finish the sermon. I don't deal well with these sort of hell, fire, condemnation kind of sermon. This isn't that kind. I've been in those services. If the bridge was out and you were driving down the road in the dark and I didn't stand up and say, hey, the bridge is out, what kind of person would I be? This is just me clearly telling you what the Bible says. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not trying to fear you into some decision that you're going to regret later. 
I'm simply telling you the bridge is out. And that Jesus stands mercifully saying there's a better way. There's a better way. So if you're not saved today, I want you to think on these things. Think about the truths that have been spoken today. If you're a believer in Christ, I want to encourage you to persevere. Persist in your faith. Wait well. Matthew 25, I had this whole section in my notes. We were going to read Matthew 25, four parables about the virgins, about the talents that God has given, about the coming day of judgment. I didn't get to that. Read Matthew 25 later. And you'll see in that passage how to wait well. How do you wait well? How do you get ready for death and judgment? Father, these realities, though we don't always like to think about them, these realities require attention. The worst thing we can do is just bury our head in the sand and say, I don't believe it, I won't receive it, I won't accept it. And so would you give people ears to hear? Would you help them to hear clearly what you're saying to them today? That's my prayer that you would help them to respond in faith. That they would come to you trusting in your sacrifice once for all for the salvation of their souls. I pray that all around the room that you would be doing your work in our hearts. And for your children, I pray that they would be waiting well, that they would be faithful to the end. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you hold us in your hand. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance of salvation for the believer. We pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to be right with you today. Amen.